0: Well, good evening. Did you all have a wonderful day doing your activities? I enjoyed the two activities I chose this afternoon. They were not on the schedule, but I opted for hot tea sipping and advanced napping. (laughs) And I'm very happy that I did that, because you all have to realize it's like going on 11 o'clock my time. So I'm quite tired. So I needed to do that advanced napping. And I wanted to just say, How much fun I've been having getting to know those of you that have come up to talk to me, sat with me at breakfast or lunch or dinner, or talked to me in the gift shop, or as we've been walking around campus, I've just been so thrilled. But I must say, those of you I met today, that I talked with today, I'm a little ticked that none of you, not a single one of you, let me know that I only had on one earring. (laughs) I, see, I have to take it off because it clicks on the microphone. I went through the whole day until dinner, and nobody said a word. <laughs> ladies, 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 girlfriend has lipstick on her teeth or no earring. You tell her. I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. It's been great to get to know you, and I'll be back at the book table. I know we don't have, I think we only have one title left, um, but uh, two titles, but I'll be back there. And those of you that have already bought books or are going to buy books, Make sure that uh, you come get them signed by me, because if my kids were here, they would say, you need to do that, have my mom sign your book, because it'll be worth a quarter more at your garage sale. (laughs) So I would be happy to increase the price of your book for your garage sale. Well, it was a cold afternoon in January of 2010, a Thursday afternoon, when I got a phone call from our daughter, Kenna. She had just graduated high school the year before and she was down in Charlotte, North Carolina going to cosmetology school. She had just finished her first semester and she was so pumped because that weekend she was going to drive a couple hours west while a few friends from Tennessee drove a couple hours east and they met somewhere near Knoxville. She had to go through some mountains I know to get there but they were gonna be planning one of the girls' weddings and she was just thrilled. And I wanted to be happy for her too. However, being the smother mother that I am, not only did I not want her you know, making, a, I think it was going to be about a six-hour round trip by herself, maybe, maybe it was even more, six or seven hours round trip by herself, but I had been watching the Weather Channel, and I saw that they were going to be getting up to six, maybe even more inches of snow down in that part of the country where they are not used to getting snow. Now, we up in Michigan, we can Honestly, get eight inches of snow, and we still have school. Because we have snow plows, and we have salt trucks. They get it off the road, the buses can still go, the kids still have school. But people in the South, bless their hearts. <laughs> Isn't that what they say about us? Like, bless their heart, bless their heart. They don't know how to drive in the snow. They think if you go really fast... That's the way to do it, and that's not the way to do it. You slow down if, you're, if your rear end starts to slide, you, you steer in the direction the rear end is sliding, not this way or you're gonna fishtail, right? They don't know how to drive, and I said to her, you know, Kenna, I know you know how to drive in snow, but they don't have salt trucks, they don't have plows, and bless their hearts, they don't know how to drive down there. And so I wanted to step in and say, you're not going because she was driving our car. It was a different Buick back then. had about 160,000 miles on it. It was 1998 Buick. This was in 2010. But my husband and I talked about it, and we parent very differently. He is a way better parent than I am, because I'm a smother mother. You know, I want to step in and prevent the behavior from ever happening. He likes to step back, let them make their own decisions, and when they make the wrong one, he always says, they'll only do it once. So he said, let her go. You know, she's 18, let her go. So she started out on her trip. Back then, she didn't have a smartphone. She had a dumb phone, but it would take pictures. And so she stopped at a gas station, and the snow was just starting to fall. And she took a picture of it, texted it to me, and said, oh, it looks so pretty, it reminds me of home. Oh, this is going to be great. And I'm like, "Okay." Well, she drove a little further, more snow was falling. Pretty soon, people started sliding off the roads. In fact, it got so dangerous that most of the people were off the roads. She was still going. She saw these two businessmen in an SUV that had slidden off into the snowbank, so she decided she was gonna stop and help them. So she pulled her old Bertha Buick, we called her Bertha, she pulled Bertha up behind the SUV, and she got out, these two guys were like just walking around the car, didn't know what to do, and she said, sirs, may I help you? And they said, who are you? And she said, I'm a Yankee teenager from Michigan. Let's get this car out of this embankment, right? And so she said, do you have anything in the car, like a blanket, a coat, anything? And they said, yeah, we have a blanket, and we had an extra coat. So she pointed at one of the men. And she said, you, you get in the front of, on the front of the car. You, you get out on the back of the car. She got in behind the steering wheel, and she said, we are going to rock this thing. So she put those pieces of clothing and blankets in f- under the front tires, because it was front-wheel drive, and she said, I'm going to go forward, and then I'm going to go backward. And as I go forward, you push in the back, and as I go backward, you in the front, you push. And we're going to rock this puppy, and we're going to get it out. Sure enough, after a couple minutes, room, got out of the snowbank. And so they tried to pay her, and she said, no, 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 just understand how to do it now, <laughs> and help somebody someday, should they be stuck in a snowbank. And so she got in her car to leave, and she said, just as she was closing the door, she saw one guy turn on the other one, and he said, no one at the office can ever know about this, no one. So she got back in her car and she kept going down that interstate headed west and she said, she saw those businessmen go whizzing by her again and they went off into the snow bank. And she said, you're on your own now, fellas. So she kept going and that many of the cars were stopping. People were abandoning their cars and starting to walk. And so she realized that that's what she was going to have to do, too, because it was completely shut down. It was now getting to be like six, almost eight inches of snow. So she grabbed all of her things. She got out of the car. She started to walk. Now, thankfully, she's a pretty sharp girl. She was living with a family, friends of ours, down in Charlotte, North Carolina. She looked at what mile marker she was at. She called down there to them back in Charlotte and had the husband, who traveled a lot for his work, look at that mile marker on the map and see which hotel was just west of there. So he called and made a reservation in her name. It was three miles away. So she walked carrying all her stuff through the snow for three miles, got off walked up the exit, got off onto that little side road, and she said the hotel was crowded with people all wanting a room, and they were like, hey, no room at the inn, you know? Well, she just walked right up to the front and said, reservation for Kenna (laughs) Eamon? And everyone was like, how the heck did you get a reservation? Because this was before you had you know smartphones that could look up a reservation and make it online, right? So she got upstairs in that hotel room, she called me, and she was hysterical. She's a pretty strong girl, she's pretty tough, she doesn't get upset much but she was hysterical, she didn't know where she was, her car was abandoned, and it just rattled my soul. So I turned to my husband when I hung up the phone, I said, Todd, she's stranded, she's at this hotel that Scott got for her, but she, you know, she doesn't even know where she's at, she had to leave her car, and, and she's at this hotel, and oh, what are we gonna do? And he goes, she'll only do it once. <laughs> he turned over and started snoring, like he just went off to sleep, <laughs> sent him off to sleep. Well, it sent me, to the Psalms. You know, as a Christian, I cut my spiritual teeth on the Psalms, I used to read them all the time, and I learned pretty early on that they had something to do with music, they were always talking about instruments, and there was this phrase I saw that said, Selah, which means to pause and think about this, or it also means to stop and listen. To pause and think about this, or to stop and listen. And I saw a reoccurring phrase pop up in the Psalms. Depending on what version you read, it either said, my soul, or oh my soul. And at first I thought it was just something that kinda added poetic cadence to the Psalms, but really, there's a greater purpose, and that's what we're gonna talk about a little bit tonight, that phrase, oh my soul. So we're gonna be in Psalm 62, which was penned by David, that shepherd boy turned king, so you can flip or tap your way there. I'm gonna actually be reading it from the New King James Version. Psalm 62. And it shows us a progression that David goes through in the psalm that maybe will help us when we get in situations where our soul is rattled. In the first two verses, he talks out addressing the God and talking about his steadfast immovable trust in God and and talking to the people. He says, truly my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. So he's declaring those truths about God that he knows that he knows, right? Now comes verses three and four where you see that he is mentioning some conflict he's experiencing. He both talks to the conflict and about it in verses three and four. Saying, How long will you attack a man? You shall be slain, all of you, like a leaning wall and a tottering fence. They only consult to cast him down from his high position. They delight in lies, they bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. Selah, pause and think about that. Then he starts to talk to himself, maybe not like I do when I'm walking around the house talking to myself, but it's almost like he's engaging his own soul in a conversation, trying to snap his frame of mind back to verses 1 and 2 when he was talking about that steadfast, immovable God and the trust he had in him. In verses 5 through 7, he says this, "'O my soul, wait silently for God alone, "'for my expectation is from him. "'He only is my rock and my salvation. "'He is my defense. I shall not be moved. "'In God is my salvation and my glory.'" The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. He's talking to his own soul. I kind of call this soul control. My friend Renee calls it bossing my heart around. She says, you know, sometimes you just got to boss your heart around and get your frame of mind back to that immovable trust in God. Then in verses 8 through 11, he starts to speak to the people. As he's talked to his soul, he's got it back in the right place. He says this, Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us, Selah. Surely men of low degree are a vapor. Men of high degree are a lie. If they are weighed on the scales, they are altogether lighter than vapor. Do not trust in oppression, nor vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. God has spoken once, twice I have heard this. And then he wraps up, with verse 12 by saying, power belongs to you, God. Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy. You render to each one according to his work. So he buttons up that whole progression of you know, thinking God's in control. Oh wait, there's some opposition. <gasps> I gotta talk to my soul here. Oh yeah, God is in control. He wraps it up by declaring that God puts everyone in their place. After musing about enemies, two-faced individuals, the wicked, He declares that, you know, it might seem like other people are in control, but they're never too clever for God. He still has the last word. Well, maybe we can take a few cues from David, you know, that hot-headed saint who used to, you know, kind of act before he thought instead of think before he acted. He was a plotter. He tried to fix outcomes. He was a control freak. He once plotted to have a man killed just so he could take his wife. We find that in 2 Samuel 11. So what transformed David from an all-out control freak to somebody who about it is said he was a man after God's own heart? I think it's because he earned, learned that fine art of soul control, of soul control. Soul control is when we speak God tr- God's truth to ourselves, out loud if you have to. Soul control is when we recognize that you know life's not fair There are gonna be times where it seems like evil people prosper, but God still wins in the end. Soul control is when we have the proper dog-like theology. We remember God's place and our place. Soul control is learning to idle our brain before we engage our mouth, thereby saving us a boatload of regret and wounded relationships. And soul control is when we stop sometimes mid-sentence and we realign our thinking with God's word before we keep talking. Or we say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Let me start over again. Soul control is when we finally realize that it's only God who has soul control, S-O-L-E, over the universe. And even when it looks like the wicked are prospering, God will reign in the end. And soul control, it doesn't just change us, it can also change other people in our lives. You see, when we last left my daughter, Kenna, she was stranded in a hotel room somewhere in western North Carolina in the mountains in some tiny little town. Didn't know what was going on. So as my soul was being rattled, I ran to the Psalms, I got done reading, and then I thought, okay, I can call in reinforcements. I can go shoot off an email to all of the members of the speaking team at Proverbs 31 Ministries to ask them to pray about the situation. So I did, and pretty soon my phone buzzed and there was a text message from one of the girls on our team, Whitney, and she said, where is Kenna? And I said, I don't know. Hang on. So I called Kenna's cell phone, and I said, honey, where are you? And she said, ah, I don't know. And I said, well, call down to the front desk and ask him what town it is, you know? Because, again, she didn't have a smartphone to look at her location. So she called down to the front desk, she told me the name of the little town, and I texted Whitney, and I told her the name of the little town. And she said, you are not going to believe this. I'm scheduled to speak at a retreat there in three weeks. Let me call the pastor and his wife. So she got on the phone. She called the pastor and his wife, who luckily, praise Jesus, owned a four-wheel drive truck. So he and his wife and their two little boys got in their truck the next morning. She did stay the night at the hotel that Thursday night. Friday morning, they went and got her. They took her to their house where she stayed until Sunday morning when finally the temperature was warm enough that the roads had melted. It was actually kind of fun. She got to be Kind of close to them. I think she still keeps in contact with them. They had a candlelight romantic dinner in the kitchen while she watched the boys downstairs and <laughs> watched a movie. It was actually kind of cool. And then on Sunday, they took her to the impound where she got her car back for $100 because apparently you're not supposed to abandon your car on the interstate. You made a lot of money that weekend. So she got in her car and she got on her way home. She called us and said, I'm okay. You know, that family was great, and I'm headed back to North Carolina. It cost me a hundred bucks, and you know I didn't get to see my friends, but oh well, I'm safe. And so, of course, my husband says, see, she learned her lesson. She'll only do that once. And I was like, no, 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 no. That was not the lesson she was supposed to learn. The lesson she was supposed to learn was, always trust your mama. (laughs) But really, neither of those things were the lesson that God had for her that weekend. You see, I neglected to tell you what was going on in our country and in our world back in January of 2010. We had just been hearing in our country of those devastating earthquakes in Haiti in January of 2010. And so my daughter, she had this little blog she kept. It might even have been, what did they used to have, MySpace or something? I used to always call that MyFace, MySpace. But she had this little blog, and I hopped on it and saw that she wrote about her experience in the snowstorm. And this is what she said. She picks up the story just after she rigged up the Yankee traction for the two businessmen. Suddenly, things were dead. With eight inches of snow all around us and no sign of movement, people were getting impatient and finally emerging from their cars. There were so many accidents that the interstate and all exits were now completely closed until further notice many people were abandoning their cars to try to get to safety. With my gas gauge almost empty, I decided that the best thing to do would be to abandon my car too and walk. Walk with all my belongings for the weekend to the nearest hotel. And so I began my hike. I met a girl on the way and we got to talking, but then as our fingers began to go numb on our nearly three-mile walk, our chattering voices fell silent. However, my thoughts piped up. You see, in my head, I was going over all of my many complaints. My feet were cold. I couldn't feel my hands. My nose was running. My shoulder really hurt from carrying my stuff. I might not get to see my friends. I was hungry. The usual self-centered I and me statements. But suddenly, I began to think about all of the things I was carrying. My coach purse my parents and grandma got me for my 18th birthday. My laptop I bought with my graduation open house money. My camera, my clothes, my cell phone, my movies. And as I did, a picture popped into my whining, complaining mind. I thought about all of the people in Haiti. They were in the same boat as me, only way worse. You see, they don't even have any of those nice things to carry. They can't walk a few miles to a warm waiting hotel bed. They don't have clean water. They can't even pay $16 for an overpriced salad at the hotel restaurant. I began in that moment to realize that I was blessed. We are all blessed, even when things don't go as we planned. Even when we have to walk in the cold, in a half foot of snow, For three miles, still, we are blessed. So soul control, it not only helps us, it can also help us to not step in the way of a lesson God is trying to teach someone else. Well, you know, we hear a lot of talk about walking in faith, and I want to finish off our time together by talking about what does it really mean to walk in faith? And I want to illustrate it a little bit by telling you about a friend of mine who is married to a man who is a pilot. He flies airplanes, and I was watching a television special. I can't even remember what it was, but I heard them say that there's two different ways to fly an airplane, and I thought, wow, that's really interesting. I wish I could interview somebody about that. So I called my friend, and she hooked up a phone call with the three of us, and I interviewed her husband all about flying an airplane. And indeed, there are two ways to fly an airplane. One is called VFR, Visual Flight Rules, and one is called IFR, Instrumental Flight Rules. Now, Visual Flight Rules is where the horizon is clear, visibility is three miles or or more, and all you need to do is line up the tips of the wings of the airplane with the horizon, and you can fly just fine. You're golden. But when the situation isn't such that the visibility is clear, maybe it's a storm, or it's dark at night, or especially if you're in a cloud, you can't line up the tips of the, the wings of the airplane. And see, one of the things about our bodies is our spatial orientation system, it has to have both pictures. It has to have the line of sight and the ear canal in order to get a clear picture. And if you take one of those away, you can be in a dive or you know, a turn and not even know it. So that's why, if you ever had an inner ear infection? Like, you're walking like this, right? Your eyes are still working fine. Well, in an airplane, when the sight is taken away, because it's dark or cloudy or stormy, then you can't line up things. So you have to fly by what's called instrumental flight rules, IFR. And there are three things that you need to look at, three instruments on that panel. The first one tells you how high you are, it's called the altimeter. The second one tells you how fast you're going, it's called the airspeed indicator. And the third one is almost looks like a video game. It's an artificial horizon that shows like the buildings or a mountain if it's off there. I love what it's called. It's called the attitude indicator. And pilots are taught to stare at those things, trusting what they see on the panel, because if they look away for even 30 seconds, they could be in a nosedive, they could be in a turn, a flip, and they wouldn't even know it because they're in that dark cloud or they're in that dark situation. And many pilots have tried to feel their way through flying when it's dark and not using IFR, and they've crashed their plane. They think that's actually what happened to JFK Jr. He wasn't flying by instrumental flight rules. Well, when situations get dark in your life, how are you gonna fly? How are you gonna fly? We're gonna look tonight at one last character in the Old Testament, that's the character of Joseph. Now, the story of Joseph goes all the way from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50. We don't have time to read everything about his life, but I would really encourage you when you go home to to read all those chapters in the next few weeks. We're going to just do the Reader's Digest condensed version of his life, and then I want to really key in on just about six verses from the final chapter about him as we talk about what it means to walk in faith. Well, for those of you who don't know about Joseph, and those of you that do, you're going to have to just bear with me here. As I tell you about him, you see, he was from a very horrible background. He was the son of Rachel. We talked about Rachel earlier. He was her first son that she actually birthed herself. And he was his father's favorite. His father gave him this coat of many colors, and it sparked a lot of jealousy among his brothers. He was always having these dreams, and in these dreams... His brothers and his family was bowing down to him and they didn't like that. It made him really jealous and angry. So one day they decided to throw him in a dry well, a cistern, and leave him for dead. Then they changed their minds and thought, well, wait a minute, let's make a little money on this deal. So they pulled him out and they sold him into slavery to some Ishmaelite traders who were headed to Egypt. And this resulted in all sorts of turmoil and trouble that Joseph never asked for in his life. He became a servant in the house of Potiphar, who was a high official, and Potiphar was good to him, but Potiphar had a little problem. He had this wife, who I like to think of as the first desperate housewife, right? I've never seen that show, but don't they like seduce the pool guy, the pool cleaning guy, or the gardener, or whatever? Well, that's how she was, and she tried to seduce Joseph. He would have nothing to do with it. He said, You know, I can't sin against my my master and my God. And so he ran away, she made up a story that he tried to rape her, so then he was thrown in the slammer. Well, when he's in prison, it's there that his gift of interpreting dreams is discovered. Boy, I wish he were here now so he could tell me why I keep dreaming that I can't get my locker open. (laughs) That'd be great. And there are two people that are in there, in prison with him, that have dreams. One is the cup bearer to Pharaoh, and one is the baker they both tell him his dreams. It ends well, for one, the cupbearer cup is released, but the baker, he dies. He's put to death. And as the cupbearer is released, Joseph says, please remember me to Pharaoh. And he says, sure, dude, no problem. Well, he gets out and he forgets. Until Pharaoh is tormented by dreams, all sorts of dreams of, of fat cows and skinny cows, and he doesn't know what it means. So then the cupbearer says, oh, today I remember." there's this dude in prison, his name is Joseph. He can tell you what your dream means. So Joseph is summoned, he goes to Pharaoh, he interprets the dream that there's gonna be years of plenty but then years of want, so they need to store up food and grain, and they do just that. And then people from all over come begging for grain, including his brothers, who of course lied to their father and said, oh, a wild animal must have attacked him, he's dead, Joseph's dead. Well, when they come begging for grain, he recognizes them They don't recognize him because he now looks different. He speaks a different language. You know, he's living in different clothing and customs. But eventually, in something that's kind of like an Old Testament reality show saga kind of thing, he does reveal who he is. And they seem to all kiss and make up. He finds out his father's still alive. Everybody's happily ever after. But then their father, Jacob, passes away. And the brothers worry oh no, what if he was just being nice to us because our father was still alive? They're afraid that he's going to let them have it. So they approach him and they say, please have you know, mercy and kindness on us. And Joseph says this. In Genesis 50, we're going to read verses 15 through 21 when he's confronted with his brothers. Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God As for you, you meant evil against me, but God. He meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You meant evil against me, but God. Now the word for meant In the Hebrew is hasab, H-A-S-A-B, and it means to think about, ponder, plan, or reckon. I love our Georgia kin that we've gotten to know now through our daughter-in-law. When they say, I reckon I'm going to go down to the Piggly Wiggly, they fully intend to do it. (laughs) You reckon, you mean it, you meant it. It was actually a military term when one side wanted to completely annihilate the other one. That's what was done to Joseph. And that's what has been done to some of you. There are people who meant evil in your life, and it brought about things that you never asked for. But let's look at the next two words. But God. Aren't those two of the most beautiful words in the Bible? But God. He has his own way of thinking, planning, and ultimately outsmarting Satan. And he can turn what was meant for evil into something good in a story of redemption. But we have to have the attitude Joseph had. You know, he could have said... Off with their heads. He was second in command only to Pharaoh. Or if he didn't kill them, he could have at least made their life miserable. He could have manipulated. He could have retaliated, but he didn't. I love that he had the proper dog-like theology. In verse 19 he says, Am I in the place of God? And then in verse 21, he showed kindness and forgiveness to people that had really mistreated him. If I could sum up Joseph's life with one little tagline, it would be this. Don't be God, do be nice. Don't be God, do be nice. But if we have been a victim like Joseph, having this attitude, it doesn't mean that we say what was done to me is okay. We don't say that. It wasn't okay what was done to you. But we say I'm okay now with what was done to me. Because God has redeemed it. He's turned that mess into his message. Now, Joseph didn't let the dark conditions of life affect his attitude. He didn't freak out and over control. He walked in a way that pleased God. And just like those airplane flight rules, there's an old sailor's proverb that mirrors this thought perfectly. I just love this. It says this, enslave yourself to the chart and compass and gain the freedom of the seas. The rest must sail close to the shore. Well, the compass obviously showed you in what direction you were headed, and the charts, it was this book that showed the depths of the seabed, any hazards that were lurking out there, the tides, the currents. And sailors who refused to use a compass and a chart, they had to to sail snugged up to the shore. They had to sail by sight. But those who just stared at that compass and stared at that chart, they had the freedom of the seas. They could go wherever they wanted because they knew what was lurking out there. Well, spiritually, we can navigate life one of two ways. We can walk by faith or by sight. We read this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, and the chart for us is God's word. It tells us what hazards are lurking out there, right? And the compass is the Holy Spirit. And I think so often we overcomplicate the Holy Spirit and we make it all mysterious, but you know when the Holy Spirit is tapping you on the heart saying, don't go that way, go this way. We need to enslave ourselves to the chart and the compass. Well, why did God make us with this uh, control tendencies? I've often wondered that, like why did he make me this way? Is it a mistake? Why? Well, when my daughter was about three years old, her baby brother came into the world and my very smart friend, very wise friend, Michelle, she didn't just bring a meal over when the baby was born and wanna see the baby and give him a new outfit. She brought a big girl basket for my daughter that had treats in it and a Disney princess coloring book and sparkle crayons. And she didn't even look at the baby. She walked right to my daughter and said, look at the big sister. Very smart woman. Well, my daughter loved to color in that princess coloring book. And I remember one day she had colored a picture of Cinderella and she came over to me where I was nursing Mitchell in the rocking chair and she said, mommy, mommy, look at my picture. And I was like, oh, that's so pretty, honey, thank you. And I'm like, I'm just trying to cop a nap here by the baby nurses. And she said, mommy, you didn't really look at it with your eyes. And I thought, okay, hand me the picture. So I took it from her and I commented on the beautiful colors she'd chosen for her dress and her sash. And I said, oh, honey, she is beautiful. And Kenna looked at that picture of Cinderella, and then she looked up at me. then she looked at the picture, and she looked up at me, and she really focused in on this birthmark bright red one I have right here that hopefully I've done a good job covering up with concealer. And she said, no, Mama, she's not beautiful yet. She hopped down and she ran and got a red sparkle crayon and she put a big old dot on Cinderella's forehead. And she said, there, Mama, now she's beautiful. You know, God made us just like we are, flaws and all. We might have to try covering it up the rest of our life, this control freak tendencies. But you know, if you don't have something to overcome, you can't have victory. Have you ever thought about that? You can't be victorious if there's nothing to overcome. And as my mama used to say, we would get too big for our britches if we didn't have to rely on God. We need to learn to walk in faith. And the last thing I want to leave you with is just this demonstration Kind of silly that I thought up about walking in faith, but I think it kind of drives home the uh, image of what it means. Because, you know, whenever we see something that's in scripture that kind of has two components to it, especially if they're opposite components, it can be difficult to do. Like I think of speak the truth in love. Well, depending on your personality, you might gravitate toward one or the other of those two extremes. Like some people, they bark out the truth in an unloving manner. But then other people think the only loving thing to do is not to tell the truth at all. So they say something that's not really true. Well, it's the same thing with walking in faith. Walking is is active, but faith often seems kind of passive. And so I like to think of walking in faith as using both legs. We have our walk leg and we have our faith leg. And then we have two groups of people. So over here, we have the girls, they like to use their faith leg. They are the God's got this girls, like God's got this. So they don't want to use that walk leg. They're going to just use their faith leg, and they're going to pray, and they're going to trust, and they're going to wait, and they're just not going to do anything on their own. They're just going to, just going to do that faith leg, and that's the God's got this girls. Now over here, we've got the go-getter girls. Anybody else a go-getter girl? We don't necessarily use that faith. Like we want to make it happen. We want to make suggestions to God. We want to move. Come on, let's go, let's go. So we use the walk leg, right? And so we move and we act and we make suggestions to God and we try to fix things. And you know what? We each look at the other one and think you're doing it wrong, but what did you notice about both of them? Neither of them are going anywhere. We need to use both legs. Yes, we pray. But we also, when God nudges us during prayer, we act. Yes, we trust God, but we also Move, when he tells us to move. And I think sometimes to these women, they kind of go about life like this. Ready, aim, Uh, am I ready? Uh, Maybe I better aim a little more, am I ready? And these girls over here are going, fire already. But then those of us over here, this is how we live, so guilty. Ready, fire, wait, was I supposed to aim? And sometimes I think God's saying to this group over here, sweetheart, don't just stand there, do something. But you know what I often hear him say to me? Sweetheart, don't just do something, stand there. Stand there and wait for me. Well, we've talked a lot about control this weekend, and I'm sure it's popped into your mind a time or two that there are challenges that you face with maybe one situation or one person in your life or one worry you have for a person in your life. And I just wanna leave you with this. Whatever it is, you know that situation that you are so tempted to wanna step in there and over control. I just wanna tell you this and tether your heart to this truth, sweet sister. Whatever that person or situation is, God is not worried. He's not worried. He's not up there in heaven wringing his hands, wondering how it's all going to work out. He's got this. And I, although it sounds backwards, I've learned in my life that sometimes in order to get a grip, you have to let go. God is God. You are not. Use both of your legs as you walk in faith. Quit trying to run the show. Start walking in faith instead. Trusting God. God who knows everything about your situation. God bless you.